Several weeks ago, it feels like I haven't preached on a Sunday morning for a while, but several weeks ago I taught a lesson on the difference between being cut back, cut off from the 15th chapter of John. And in that lesson we considered that Jesus used an everyday example to communicate a spiritual principle or concept. Jesus said in that passage that he was the vine and that as his children, as his people, we are the branches. He said that we were cleansed by his word and that if we abided or dwelt and lived in him and he in us, that's a two-way street, that that living relationship would produce fruit. The Lord went on to say that his father was the husbandman or the gardener who examines the vine prunes or cuts back the fruitful branches but also cuts off the unfruitful branches today i feel very much directed of the lord that we would consider another aspect of what the lord would have us to know from the platform of living things that produce fruit and my title for today's lesson message whatever you want to call it is the law of sowing and reaping So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence that is here. Lord, we need you. Your word says that without you, we can do nothing. So Lord, we acknowledge that today and we acknowledge that we desperately need you every day. We ask you, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would open understanding, that you would challenge, that you would convict where need be. Lord, that your will would be done and that you would bring forth your desire in us and through us, we pray. We ask you for your anointing on a vessel of clay, that your will be done in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. The scripture, I think I may have made this comment earlier, but the scripture goes together. There, there is no contradiction in the word of God. There is no confusion, but rather the confusion, if there is any, lies with our lack of understanding and our ability to successfully put the scriptures together and that that's not said as a criticism that's just the fact that we have to learn how god gave us his word and how it all goes together and and as long as we live we'll continue to learn that you cannot mine the depths of the word of god Uh, just when you think you've got a passage completely squared away the lord just twists something and says have you seen it from this perspective and reveals it to us again and again and the epistles let me, let me step back or out of the lesson for a moment and just give you a quick overview of how the New Testament works for those of you that might be newer than others. We have four Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that all tell the story of Jesus' life and his ministry. They don't all record the exact same details. Some of them all have the same story. Some stories only appear in one of them, and there's reasons for that. That's the subject for another lesson. But all of them record different perspectives of different events in the life and times of jesus and his ministry obviously culminating in his death burial and resurrection Uh, some would suggest that they are written for the purpose of addressing different audiences or different ways of thinking but these four gospels all tell the story of one savior and so if you can imagine matthew mark luke and john as four lanes on a freeway all going in the same direction they all four of those lanes merge into the book of Acts. Obviously, weren't Western Australians because we're some of the worst mergers in the world. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John merge into the book of Acts and become one New Testament church. And so everything that you read in those four Gospels is responded to, acted out upon in the book of Acts. The church is born. People are born again of water and spirit church begins in jerusalem it spreads to samaria and judea and as the lord said the uttermost parts of the earth up to us some two thousand years later after the book of acts there are what the bible calls epistles which is just a fancy word for letters and these letters are written to different churches sometimes we might consider them an individual congregation sometimes they're written to a region like ephesus or galatia as we're going to be focusing on today And they are giving instruction for how to live for God, how to understand God, what God likes, what God doesn't like, what God wants us to be involved in. Spiritual growth is, is, I guess, the overarching focus of the epistles. But if you study the Word of God, you'll see that many of these letters have a theme 
or a thread that runs through them. That was something that one of my former pastors taught very strongly. There was a, a thread or a theme that ran through that letter, however connected to that thread. It wasn't the only thing that was in the epistle, but connected to that were many other principles and concepts that the Lord wanted to communicate to his people and understand the great treasures of the word of God. The fact that you can go back and say, yeah, well, I know it says this in this epistle and that in that epistle. And you can sit there with that epistle open on your lap late at night or early in the morning reading it and see something that you've never seen before. Nobody edits it while you're asleep. Nobody released an update that you could download during the night. But God has a way of letting us know that his word is true, that it is alive, that it is relevant, that it is timeless and that is forever settled in heaven. And so we have to approach the Word of God understanding that we are finite or limited, but its author is the opposite. He is infinite and he is unlimited. And so we are, we are trying to grasp things that have come from the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. But the awesome part is he wants us to know. His Word is not hidden. He said, if you will seek, you will find. He said you should study. He said you should learn, you should read, you should obey, you should love. That's why Hebrews says, and I've already, I'm out of my lesson already, but Hebrews says that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The reward is him. If I seek him, he will reward me with more of himself which he does through his word, through his presence, and through him in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. So with that platform, side thought, entree, we're going to Galatians chapter 6 and we're starting to read at verse 1. And we're talking about the law of sowing and reaping. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Turn to your neighbor and say, especially unto me. Amen. Going back to the idea that there is a a thread that runs through an epistle, Paul begins the epistle to the Galatians in chapter 1 expressing his surprise at how quickly they have moved or changed their beliefs. He describes it as another gospel. He's, he's quite taken aback. He said he's, that how quick that it happens, and he's, it's not, he's not happy about that. In fact, in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, Paul said, addressing that issue, he said, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. It's a very strong statement. Not only is it strong, but it's repeated. Paul deliberately repeats it because he is emphasizing the importance of what he is saying in this verse. And then as the epistle unfolds from there, doing a little bit of what people call expository teaching this morning. From here on, one of the main things that the Apostle Paul focuses on is that the New Testament covenant, we talked about covenants in our Bible class, 
has been has replaced the Old Testament covenant and that you cannot receive the benefits of the new by keeping the rules of the old that's that's a fairly simple statement but that's that's the the concept Paul uses an example I believe it's in chapter 4 of a situation from Abraham's life to explain this and uh, we'll, we'll cover that in our Bible class in the weeks to come but one of the main problems that existed with the old covenant or what we might know as the law of Moses was that the people of God were unable to keep the law not because there was something necessarily wrong with it but because of the weakness of their own sinful flesh their own corrupt human nature Romans 8 and 3 to 4 says for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh because of our flesh God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us and how that happens is what the second half of that verse is who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit so we need the spirit of god living in us to be able to overcome that weakness and to live a righteous and victorious life in jesus christ the lord came because he had to do something that we could not i don't think it's too bold a statement to say that if we were able to attain righteousness via the old covenant that he wouldn't have come but he came to do something that we were never going to be able to do on our own amen and as a part of that paul was trying to stop as a part of the epistle and dealing with that subject he was trying to stop some of the infighting if i can put it that way that was going on within the church at galatia because of this issue there was a lot of backwards and forwards and in in chapter five and these are all on the wall so don't become disoriented in chapter 5 verses 13 through 15 he said for brethren you have been called to liberty to freedom only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh but by love serve one another for all the law is fulfilled in one word or in one statement even in this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself he said but if you bite and devour one another Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. So these three verses, Paul is saying the freedom that you now have in Christ. He said, if I could say this, he said, don't you dare use that to justify carnal sinful behavior. But recognize that if we truly love our neighbor, love our neighbor as ourselves, we will actually be fulfilling the righteousness that was required of us by the law. And he said, if you don't stop biting and devouring each other and and fussing and fighting over this, he said, you'll end up destroying each other and the church. And then in the latter section of chapter 5 of Galatians, verses 16 through 26, continuing the same thought, he he finishes in verse 15 with, with, you got to stop biting and devouring each other over this. You're going to destroy everybody. He says, this I say then, or in response to that, or instead of that, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the ones who are, they're never going to get on. They're never going to, there's no peacekeeper in this earth that's going to be able to bring peace between carnal flesh and the Spirit of God. One has to submit to the other. So that, he said, they're contrary one to another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Then he says, in verse 19, and many of us know this passage well, the works of the flesh are manifest, or they're revealed, they're exposed, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. I'm not going to go into the meanings of all of these words, but those first four all have to do with immorality verse 20 says idolatry witchcraft hatred variance emulations wrath strife seditions heresies envyings murders drunkenness revelings and such like of the which i tell you before as i have also told you in time past 
that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If those words are not familiar with you for the sake of time, I'm not going to go over them. It's a good thing to go home and look them up. Get an idea of what the works of the flesh are. But then it says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or a lot of modern versions would say self-control. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, or if we have spiritual life, let us also walk in the Spirit. And let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So, in verses 19 through 23, there are two lists that we're given. There's the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Why are they not both called works or both called fruit? Why doesn't it say these are the works of the flesh, these are the works of the Spirit, or these are the fruit of the flesh, and this is the fruit of the Spirit? Our flesh, or our carnal nature, it's not talking about your muscles or your bones, but our carnal nature produces the things on the first list automatically. Automatically. They're built in. They are the default setting. If you've got a computer or an iPad or a smartphone, Sometimes when you have a problem, what they advise you to do is return it to its default settings. Take it back to how it came out of the box. Mankind in his sinful state comes out of the box with all these things built into our software. That's just how it is. Amen. You do not need to cultivate it. You don't need to protect it so it doesn't get lost. It's just what the flesh does. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, are a product of a healthy relationship with Jesus. Remember the vines and the branches. And will not grow by accident. You do nothing, the works of the flesh, they're there. They're just there. But the fruit of the Spirit come about when we choose to walk with God. We choose to surrender to God. We choose to allow His Word and His Spirit to work in us. So, this is a bit of a summary of Galatians thus far. It's this platform or background that brings us to our text that we started in chapter 6 and where we're going back to in a moment. To summarize what Paul has said so far, the Galatians had unfortunately got their gospel confused and done it pretty quickly. Part of that confusion was that there was a problem within the church with understanding that New Testament believers did not have to be under the law of Moses from the Old Testament. This problem was serious enough that Paul said the conflict was like they were biting and devouring one another to the point that the church was in danger of being destroyed. Then he wrote and he told them that to live successfully in the New Testament church, they needed to walk in the Spirit or to be governed and empowered by the Spirit, continually putting behind them the first list and being transformed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God to produce the second list. Everybody with me so far? Okay, amen. So now we go back to Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 through to 10. Just doing a little teaching this morning. The exciting evangelist is here next weekend. Galatians 6 and 1, again, for this, to repeat it, says, Brethren, for man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual... Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone. That's not talking about being selfish. It's talking about looking at yourself. And not in another. Let every man, sorry, for every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary 
in well-doing. Anybody ever get weary? Amen. He's not saying you should never feel weary. He's saying don't stop. For in due season, in God's time, we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So this passage in chapter 6 begins with recognizing that sometimes we, everybody say that includes me, can be overtaken with a fault. Now there's never an excuse for sin. The Lord doesn't say a little bit of sin every day is okay, but the Bible says he knows our frame. And he's admonished us that if we do sin, that we need to repair that breach urgently. Urgently. When you know you've sinned, you don't postpone repentance. You go to God, you make it right. You make it right. Because if you don't, you may be the one that loses out. And the responsibility of the body of Christ when someone's been overtaken with a fault is to restore or to help them get back up dust themselves off, make things right with God, and to keep moving forward. So here's the question. How do you know if you should be involved in the restoring process? The qualifications that we're given is that ye which are spiritual restore such a one. So if you're not spiritual, you're excluded from that process. So then the next question is, how do I know that I'm spiritual? A lot of people have a lot of different ideas about what that means. But it really can be answered quite simply in that which list is dominating your life? Works or fruit? List one or list two? Now, I'd love to tell you that when you're filled with the Holy Ghost that the only thing you'll ever have is list two and that list one ceases to exist anymore. But anybody that's walked with God for more than about 15 minutes knows that that's not accurate. We must always be submitting and surrendering ourselves to the Lord regularly so that list two can be the dominant list. Amen. That's how we know if we're spiritual. Which list is our top ten? Amen. Verse two says that we should bear one another's burdens. Verse five says that we should each bear our own burdens. Now, at face value, that seems to be contradictory. But to help you understand what Paul is saying, or at least how I understand it, verse 2 is speaking about how we ought to care for one another in that restoration process. If I'm overcome with a fault, I hope somebody cares enough about me, is spiritual enough to help me get up and keep going. Amen. Verse 5, when it talks about bearing your own burdens, the context in verse 5 is about not thinking too highly of yourself, but rather proving or examining your own deeds, not comparing yourself with someone else. You're bearing your own burden. I'm responsible for me. So if I'm going to help a brother, I've got to be spiritual. I've got to have meekness. I've got to do it being careful that I don't make the same mistakes myself. But at the same time, I've also got to be careful that I don't think that I'm more important or more special than somebody else because I see myself having more of list two than my brother or sister does. But I've got to bear my own burden. And here's the thing, when you look into the mirror of the Word of God and you're honest and He shows you what needs to change, you've got enough burden to keep you busy for a while. You think your list is fully set and clean? Ask somebody to help you out. Someone who's spiritual, preferably. Amen. So bearing your own burden in verse 5 is basically telling us to worry about our own conduct or mind your own business basically is what it's saying. Amen. What is also interesting is that twice in this passage there is a warning about being deceived. I heard a preacher say recently that he often prays that he would not be deceived. And when he was asked why he prayed that prayer, he said, because when you're deceived, you don't know it. When you're deceived, you don't know it. You see, the moment that you realize you've been deceived, the deception is finished. It's over. But while you are deceived, you are convinced that you know exactly what's going on. Amen. How do we get deceived? Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, says, Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. 
For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters that spreads out her roots by the river, shall not see when the heat comes, but her leaf shall be green, shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Then it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? The answer is in verse 10, where it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Ephesians 4 and 22 says that you put off concerning the former conversation or the former lifestyle, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So Paul is writing to the Ephesians saying, you've got to put off the old list because it's corrupt and its desires are deceitful. Verse 7 and 8 bring all this together in Galatians chapter 6 when it says, be not deceived. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he'll reap. Verse 8, if I sow to my flesh, of that flesh I'll reap corruption. If I sow to the Spirit, if you've got a King James, that's capital S, it's talking about the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of man, then I shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The warning is don't be deceived. And the thing that we are warned about the most that can deceive us is our own hearts. Why? Because they're corrupt according to lusts. Because of the first list. Even when every day you try to get that old list out and fill up the new list, that old list is trying to find a way back in. It's trying to find a gap, an open window, a back door that's left unlocked, an issue in your heart that provides an access point. That's why the Bible says we don't give place unto the devil. That means don't give him a handhold. That's why Jesus said, the prince of this world comes, but he's got nothing in me. There's no access in me for him. Now, he's our role model, but we're not him. We're working on getting rid of those handles and those cracks and those open windows and doors. But our own flesh can deceive us. And we can actually get to a point, which is, I'm not going to go there because it's another lesson, but where it talks about how the Lord will allow us after a season to become deceived. We've got, I don't want to be deceived. Ever since I heard that preacher say those words, I've made that a part of my prayer life. God, don't let me be deceived. Don't let my own perspectives, my own rational mind, my own understanding cause me to be deceived and miss the truth of what it is that you're saying to me. Amen. Just because we see something that we know is not right, we don't instantly see consequences that God warns us about, God's not mocked. God is not mocked. You see it in the New Testament, you say, I think it's in, in one of the epistles of Peter, it says, since the fathers fell, where is the promise of his coming? They mock, they say, oh, you've been saying that Jesus is coming back for a long time, where is it? God's not mocked. It'll happen. It'll happen. His calendar, not mine. His calendar. When he has appointed a time, he will return. And if you begin to doubt that and begin to mock that, remember, God is not mocked. He has, the Bible says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the author and the finisher. That means he has the first word and he's going to have the last word. When it's all said and done, he's going to say, I told you so. I let you know. Amen. We will reap what we sow. This is a law or a principle that does not change. Some things to keep in mind when you think about this law. It applies to the believer and the unbeliever. Whatever you sow, that's what grows. What we sow or what we plant is what will come up out of our ground. Amen. And we reap later than when we sow. No farmer harvests the same day he puts seed in the ground. And so you put a seed in the ground, you cover it with dirt, you water it, 
there is, depending on what that particular seed is, there is a time span between sowing and reaping. And it's easy to forget I put a seed in the ground. Many of us can testify of throwing, I mean, my parents, when I was growing up, they had a compost heap. Anybody grew up with parents that used to make their own compost? Some people still do it. That you're into gardening and all the vegetables, skins and bits you didn't eat and fruit peelings, they all went out into this place and you covered it over and as it decomposed, it made rich stuff that you could put on your garden. So that's what gardeners tell me. But from time to time, a seed that went into the compost heap sprouted. Maybe you threw the, the insides of the pumpkin in there and next thing you know, you've got a pumpkin vine growing in the compost heap because you sowed the seed. What you sow, you will reap. Amen. But it doesn't happen instantly. The other principle of reaping and sowing, or sowing and reaping, is that we reap more than we sow. One grain of wheat goes into the ground. One single grain. No farmer would bother if they only got one grain from the stalk. You just keep the one you had and be done with it. But one goes into the ground... The stalk comes up, it sprouts, and I don't know all the figures, but many grains of wheat spring from one. We always reap more than we sow. Amen. First Peter 1 and 23, the apostle said, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Corruptible seed decays. It perishes. It produces corrupt fruit. That's the old list. List one, works of the flesh. But the Word of God, that seed cannot be corrupted. Because when you, if you do corrupt it, it's no longer the Word of God. It's something else. But it is incorruptible, and it produces life, and it lasts forever. So when we are born again of water and spirit, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. God gives us new life. We are, if I can use this parallel, we are a fresh patch of dirt. The question is, what will you sow in your patch? God says, here it is. Clean slate. Sins are washed away. All forgiven. Filled with my spirit. What are we going to grow here? Because you know, there's an awful lot of seed on the market. There's an awful lot of seed out there but you've only got so much soil. If I sow to the flesh, I reap corruption, decay, rotten fruit, the old list. You see, sowing to the flesh, sowing to the flesh not only includes the carnal desires of our human nature, but it also means that our responses to situations, people, problems, pressure, those responses will come from the old list. I was talking to somebody the other day that used to serve the Lord and at the moment isn't, but by faith is coming back. And they were talking about they were in a situation where they were afraid, they, they feared for their life. You know what they did? They prayed. You know why? Because when you're in threat of your life, what's that? The essence of what you believe shows up. I don't believe in God anymore. You, you threaten their life, you see who knows how to pray all of a sudden. You know, that's what they say. It's funny, but it's true. There's no atheists on a crashing plane. Everybody starts praying when the plane's going down. I flew on an internal airline. In this. Some of you heard me tell this before, but flew on one of the small internal airlines in Indonesia, and in the back seat pocket there was a prayer booklet for about eight different faiths, I think it was. So just to cover all the bases, just in case you were going to crash, you could, you could pray them all. I was like, I don't even need that booklet. I dealt with that this morning before I got on the plane. Amen. But how we respond to situations, people, problems, pressures, will not be from the fruit list. It'll be from the works list. And let's be honest, when you find yourself in a difficulty of any kind, fruit is either there or it isn't. Now, that's when you find out. When the heat comes on, that's when you find out, I could use a bit more fruit. I could use a bit more cleaning out. To put it in a really simple sense, when I need orange juice right now, it's not time to dig a hole and plant the tree. I need to be able to reach and squeeze and say, there it is. It's fresh. 
Not from me, from him. Because when you're in, under pressure, it's not time to be digging a hole and planting fruit seeds. It's too late. Sister Ballette covered some of this last week when she ministered, I think it was Sunday night, about mediocre Christians. I think that was Sunday night. You see, when we first come to the Lord, when we first repent of our sins, much of the focus is on what we do or what we should no longer do. Uh, you, many of you can testify that when you're born again, repented of your sins the first time, you, you want to stop lying. You want to stop swearing. You might want to stop stealing if that was something you did or drinking or being immoral. There's a, they're all on the list, the first list, as you can't remember if you read that list you'll probably jog your memory of some of the things that were before you were saved amen and that's all good we should we should turn from sin we should turn away that's what repentance is but when we do turn from sin and we're born again of water and spirit the focus changes from what we do to who we are because walking with god is not simply a list of things we don't do you can have a list of things you don't do and be an atheist you can be a good person in terms of society's assessment and not believe in god so when we're born again we do put off the old man try to erase the old list we do put on the new man but the lord begins to transform who we are not just what we do because from a spiritual perspective if he can transform who we are what we do takes care of itself when my heart is changed, when my thinking is changed, when there's little bits of fruit beginning to bud on this dry old stump, my behavior will begin to change. And so then even as we're taught and we're discipled and pastors and leaders say, well, you know, these are things we should think about, we want to do that because of the condition of our heart. But if we just feel pressured to do some things because that's what the pastor said or, or others have told us, there's a place for obedience at that level but it's so much more transforming when it comes from our heart not just this is what they said we should do they go together and god is merciful and god is gracious and sometimes we submit to things we don't understand and he honors that but he will then add to our understanding and that's where he wants to bring us to so that when somebody says why don't you fill in the blank you don't have to say, well, I don't really know, but that's what my pastor said, so I'm trying to be a good church member. That's okay to a point, but it's much better if it's because you can say, I don't believe those things please God. I believe there are principles in the Word of God that I don't want to violate. I love God. I don't want to do it anymore. Now, the behavior from the observer is the same, but the process is different because we're sowing something. Amen. You see, the trap, and Sister Blett, this is what she touched on, the trap or the deceit, remember about being deceived, is that thinking that as long as we no longer do certain things, that nothing else matters. As long as on my list of acceptable behavior, I'm ticking all the boxes, then what's going on in here, that's nobody's business. But the Lord said, I search the hearts. I try the reins. You see, as Christians, we shouldn't steal. Hopefully that's not a revelation. Hopefully you've got that squared away. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't be violent. We shouldn't be adulterous. We shouldn't be fornicators. We shouldn't waste our funds with gambling. We shouldn't worship idols. All of that is true. But possibly the greatest deceit or the greatest risk of deceit for believers is not lying or stealing or violence or immoral. And I, I've never been tempted to steal since I was born again. I did when I was a kid, but we'll talk about that later. But since I decided I wanted to please God, I don't walk through the shopping center and think, man, that's expensive, but I'd like to have it. That's not an issue. That's not an issue for me. I'm quite happy to say that. I don't think you'd be worried if your pastor was struggling with shoplifting. But the, for many of us, it's not just the external observable behaviors. But the greatest risk, once we've been walking with God for a while, the greatest risk is the deceit that slips into our hearts and fosters things like pride, rebellion, stubbornness, and disobedience. Because a lot of them are unobservable to the naked eye. But the one that tries the hearts, 
He's worried more about those things than whether or not you shoplift. He's worried more about those issues of the inner man than whether or not you break the speed limit or that stuff that we focus on the easy to measure stuff. But the deceit that can get into our hearts is what concerns the Lord most. I want to share something with you. My wife and I were talking about this recently, discussing uh, some preaching together. Now, I'm the one that stands up here most of the time, but a lot of the good ideas I get from talking to my wife. But Isaiah 53 and verse 5, many of you could quote this. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of his peace was upon, of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. Talking about prophetically the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Luke 4 and 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. Isaiah spoke about the Lord being wounded and bruised. A wound is something that bleeds on the outside. A bruise is something that bleeds on the inside. It's under the surface. Sometimes can't even be seen, but somebody pokes it, you know it's there. There are the things that are external. The list. I don't steal, I don't lie, I don't kick my neighbor's dog. Whatever that list might happen to be, And the risk is that you can behave, if I can put it that way, or live in a fashion that you never do anything wrong and be as spiritual as a fence post. Because the bruises are just as in need of healing as the wounds, but nobody sees them. That's why he said, I've come to set them that are bruised. He said, bring them liberty freedom because the in, inner wounds you can die from inner bleeding if they're not healed you're captive the rich young ruler came to Jesus he had the list he had the whole list he said good master what must I do to be saved and the Lord said only mother and father do this do that do this and he was like yep 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 got them done them all since I was a kid and the Lord said Give all that you have. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor and come follow me. The Bible says that man went away. He was grieved. He was heartbroken because there was something on the inside that couldn't be measured on a list. And to the outside, he was Mr. Upstanding. He was a young man that all the mothers wanted their daughters to marry. Had a good job, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do any of those bad things. Was a good young man. But the Lord said, on the inner man, you're deceived. The heart is deceitful. Amen. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Amen. His time frame is not ours. But he will not be mocked. Amen. We sow into our own lives and into the lives of others around us. Not only that, Others eat from our harvest. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 10. Daniel, if you've got that one, please. So much appreciate. Daniel on the back helps me out every week. Verse 9 says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, lest thou... Sorry, thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So under the law, this was the law. This wasn't a polite suggestion, it was the law. When they harvested whatever they had sown, they were not to, you know, really go right into the corners and get every last little grain of wheat or every grape off the vine because for whatever reason the poor had become poor, those corners... And those little bits still left on the vine were for them. That was to keep them alive. They didn't, if they, often they didn't have a lot of family support. They, they certainly didn't have any governmental support. None of that even remotely existed. Somebody was poor or was unable to provide for themselves, it fell to the family to take care of them. But the Lord said, 
When you harvest your field, you leave some. You leave some. So here's the thing the Lord laid on my heart. If my brother, going back to Galatians chapter 6, is overtaken with a fault, who's struggling, who we might say is doing poorly, if he comes to my field to glean a little strength, to try to make it through another day, what have I left in the corners for him or her? What have I sown that they're now about to consume? Is it good? Is it corruption? Is it going to lead to eternal life? Or am I spreading the corruption of the deceit of my own heart? Amen. Nasty passage of Scripture that none of us like is found in Proverbs chapter 6, and I'm coming to a close. Verse 16 through to 19. Many of you know this passage. Verse 16 says, These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among the brethren. I could take those verses, and I'm pretty sure I could line them up next to list one, connect them all, find a match. You You have to find a match. May have to break down some of the meanings of the words in the first list, but they're all there. They're all there. There's a lot of sowing to the flesh in that verse. But the seventh item at the end of verse 19 is described uniquely as something that is sown. He that soweth discord. Talking about the law of sowing and reaping. So in other words, unlike some of the other things on the list, it's not obvious it's not apparent, but it grows. It's not, you know, somebody lies, that can be pretty obvious, particularly if somebody else knows the truth. But the seventh one is he that soweth discord. You see, discord means to cause strife or, particularly with a musical concept, to interfere with harmony. And when somebody sows discord, they don't start a brawl. They don't flip tables over and upset people left, right, and center. But they sow a seed. They sow a seed. Brother Gavin ministered a couple of weeks ago on the Sunday night. Some of you were here, some of you weren't. Those of you that weren't, you missed out. But he spoke about unity. And he spoke from the story of Achan, Jericho, and Ai, and, and, and of that, that corruption that made its way into the camp of Israel. And there was a warning that God used our assistant pastor to give, and it was confirmed through the gifts of the Spirit. And if, if I could condense all of that, it's found in the first part of that verse, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Just because you think the seed is out of sight, His time will come. His field, His harvest, His vine. He's the husbandman. God is not mocked. Ask Eve. You won't die. Surely that's not what the Lord meant. What did she do? She disobeyed and nothing happened. Ah, it's going to be okay. So the seed of disobedience. Grew a crop that we've been eating of ever since. Didn't happen straight away. No lightning from heaven, no ground opening up, no instant death, just changed her mind. She was deceived. The Bible describes her as being deceived. And God said, I'm not going to be mocked. And the consequences came. You see, when somebody sows discord, the results are not obvious instantly. But as it grows, it brings separation between brethren, brothers and sisters. Starts out small and seemingly insignificant. You know, let me give you another revelation this morning. I'm not trying to be humorous. It's not the right context for that. Every person in this building is imperfect. From the first-time visitor, if you are, sorry if that's a bit straight, to 
I don't think the pastor is the top of the tree, but just to give that example to the pastor. All of us are imperfect. Imperfect people, imperfect church. Which means there are things that are wrong. Which means that we can see things that are wrong. Now, the question is, what do you do with that? Because if we make the comments that we make sometimes, we're not leading the church split. Not telling somebody, go on, get out of here, you're not welcome here, or trying to cause a problem. But we're sowing a seed. We're sowing a seed. Because does that mean we should never say anything wrong about anything in the church? That's a basic principle, yeah, that's a good approach. Not because we're pretending there's nothing wrong, but how does that help somebody? How does how do I help somebody if I say, Yeah, the way this was done at the church I used to go to was better? Or this shouldn't happen and that shouldn't happen. And trying to be kind this morning the, a lot of the comments that get thrown around make their way back to me somehow so don't don't think that nobody knows i'm being a little pastoral this morning i hope that's okay but those seeds you see if you ever watched i think we probably have all seen footage documentaries wildlife stuff in africa i had the privilege of going to africa i've seen carnivores prepare to attack herbivores Meat eaters, grass eaters. Didn't actually see it happen because on that particular day, the herbivores won. They got away. But you often see the example and the, the narrator often talks you through what happens of how something that is either very young or very sick is separated from a herd. And then that makes it easy for the carnivore. And that when the herd is aware of the carnivore, they'll take the young and they'll put them in the middle. And then the carnivore has to get through mom and dad to get to the baby. The Bible says that our adversary goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, looking for opportunity. Now, if I sow a seed of discord, it's not instantly an oak tree, but it's a seed. And as that seed grows, it pushes my brother or sister closer to the edge of the herd. When what it needs to happen is they need to come into the herd not the other way around. I want you to stand with me this morning.